My junior year in high school, we had a legitimate food fight in the cafeteria one day. I mean, it was like something out of a movie. Food started flying, everybody jumped up out of their seats and ran to the four corners of the cafeteria for shelter. Well, you know, the, the administration frowned on this, as you might imagine, and so they began an investigation to figure out who started the food fight. And everybody that day was blaming everybody else for it. It was the football players who started it. No, it was the freshmen who did it. It was the band members. Everybody wanted to blame everybody else. I thought the whole thing was really funny until the principal invited me into his office and said, Kyle, I want you to watch this surveillance video from the cafeteria yesterday and tell me what you see. Now, y'all, I'm taking my glasses off. God's honest truth. I did not start that food fight. I, rem- I, I maintain my innocence to this day. But right then there, in that moment, when I knew it was on video, I began to sweat. Because I, who knows what the video might show. And in my mind, in that office, I started thinking about who can I blame? Who can I throw under the bus for this? If push comes to shove, I'm not going down for this. Now, I was exonerated. They really just wanted me to be a star witness, as it turned out. Um... But I realized in that, in that moment, this is human nature. It was so very natural for me to start thinking, who can I blame? Because when things go wrong, it's so natural for us to look for somebody else to be at fault. Somebody's got to be to blame. Somebody messed up, not me. And even when we do wrong, even when we ourselves are guilty, it's so often the case that we want to make it about someone else. It has to be somebody else's fault. Now, that's not a new phenomenon. That's a story as old as time. Genesis chapter 3, at the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, in the garden, they sinned, and the very first thing they did when God exposed that sin, they began to blame others. They shifted the blame. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Nobody wanted to own reality. They didn't want to own what they had done. And nothing has changed. I know this about my own heart. I don't don't like owning my sin, the reality of my darkness and and the the things that are in my heart, the things that I say and do. I don't like to own those things. I I, I certainly, usually I'll have a good excuse for what I've done or I'll dismiss it as no big deal. I'll justify it. I'm going to find a way out of it because I don't want to own that reality rather than actually calling sin for what it is and facing it head on. And I I don't have to know you well to know that none of us like to own our wrongdoing, our sin. We want to weasel our way out of it. It's human nature. But here's the truth. Unless we do, unless we face sin head on, unless we call it for what it is, we're never really going to know God. And I don't say that to be extreme. I believe that. Unless we deal with the reality of our own sin, we will never really know God. Because what James tells us today in James chapter 1 is that God does at least two primary things when it comes to our sin. First, God exposes it. Maybe even very painfully, but God exposes our sin. And then secondly, God expunges it, which means he cleanses, he purifies, he blots it out. And both are necessary. The exposure and the cleansing are both necessary for us if we're going to know and walk with God. This is not a minor issue. This is not something that we sweep under the rug or trust that God would sweep under the rug. No, it has to be dealt with and it has to be done away with. And James makes that very clear for us today. Right here in the middle of chapter 1. So look with me again at verse 13. What we just read a minute ago. James begins with a command. He says, let no one say when he's tempted. I'm being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, up to this point, in the first 12 verses of this this book, James has been dealing with the issue of trials. A trial, that's something that we experience in this life that poses a threat to our faith in God. Something difficult we walk through. It could be sickness, it could be grief, it could be persecution, financial issue, personal conflict. The list goes on potentially forever. But right here, finally, James approaches the issue of temptation, the trial of temptation. And temptation is very simply this internal desire that we all feel to sin. The enticement to sin. An opportunity arises where I might be drawn into rebellion against God. Sin. Now, now, temptation takes a different form maybe for all of us. It could take a million different forms. I'm going to trust in this moment rather than going through them all one by one. I'm going to trust that you know your own heart well enough to know where you're tempted. Perhaps you're tempted to greed. Perhaps you're tempted to gossip or to uh, sexual impurity. There's, there's always for all of us an area, or perhaps many areas, of temptation. But in those moments, James prohibits us from blaming God for that. He says, let no one say, I'm being tempted by God. Now, I'm going to guess that maybe you've never actually said that out loud. It seems like a very unspiritual thing to say, I'm being tempted by God. I don't know that I've ever said it out loud. And yet we can still do it. Now, how can we do that? Yeah, I mentioned Adam and Eve a minute ago. I'm going to be fanciful here, but I want you to just imagine a conversation. After sin, after they've been ejected from the garden, Adam takes a look at Eve. Just try to imagine. And he says, why did God even put that tree in the garden to begin with? Why did God make that tree so attractive? Why did he make the fruit so enticing and delicious? Wasn't God just asking for it? Wasn't he asking for us to eat it? Why would he do that to us? Now, it's not totally far-fetched that they might have that conversation. Because we do stuff like that. It wasn't just Satan. It wasn't just the serpent tempting us. God tempted us by putting it there. Or we might be prone to look at our own temptations, you and I both, and say, well, God obviously made me this way, so how can he find fault with me if I do it, if I act on it? God gave me these desires. How can he tell me then not to act on them? Why can he be angry with me if I do it? And see, in in that, what we're doing is we're saying God's the one really tempting me. God's at fault for my sin. But James comes in very clear on this. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. James speaks to the character of the Lord. That he is perfectly moral, he's perfectly righteous, God has complete integrity Integrity means, it comes from the word integer, which means one. It means what you think and say and how you live are the same. And God, above all the creation, God has perfect integrity. Whereas we do not, He does. He is beyond temptation. And God never desires to see you sin. God never delights to see us sin. He doesn't lead us into sin. And so James' point, uh, from earlier in the chapter, if you've been with us, That God will give you tests to purify your faith. God will either allow or even give difficulties in your life for the testing and purifying of your faith and character and trust. But God will never tempt you to sin. That's a totally different thing. Okay, so where does it come from then? Well, look at verse 14. James gives us clarity here. 
But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That word lust means sinful desire. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Isn't that a vivid picture right there? It's a scary picture. James is saying that temptation and sinful desire conceive and give birth. They come together and then they give birth. And the birth is, of course, sin. And sin grows up and brings with it death. This is one of the clearest statements in the Bible on the nature and the reality and the outcome of sin. That sin comes from us and it produces destruction. Now look with me just a little more clearly how how this unfolds, okay? Temptation. It starts with temptation. Each one is tempted. Now understand this. Temptation is not our main problem. If we, We might approach temptation as the problem. Temptation is potentially a problem. But everybody encounters temptation. No matter how spiritually mature you are, everybody has temptation in their life. Even Jesus encountered temptation when he walked the earth. Now, his was an outward temptation, not an inward in the same sense that we experience. Hebrews tells us that Jesus himself was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So in Jesus Christ, there was no sinful desire rising up within him to to meet that temptation, to conceive with that temptation. But even Jesus knew what it was to face it. And therefore, we can understand this, that temptation is not the primary issue. Temptation can be resisted. We're not doomed to fail. By faith, we can resist. The problem, James says, comes when temptation conceives with sinful desire. When those two things meet. It's when the opportunity for sin joins together with our desire for it. When opportunity meets desire, James says we are enticed, lured, and then dragged away. You know, he's actually using a fishing metaphor right here. That You bait a hook, it's called a lure. You throw it in the water, a fish sees it and desires it, takes a bite, and then the fish is dragged away. And James says that's exactly what happens to us when it comes to temptation and sin. With one important difference... Fish are ignorant. Fish are ignorant. That fish in the water does not know that there's a hook in the lure, in the bait. All he sees is food. We, on our part, James makes clear that we are not ignorant. The problem with me is not that I don't know any better. The problem is when I sin, I am carried away by my own lust, by my own sinful desire. Where is the emphasis here? James has already told us the emphasis is not on God. God doesn't tempt. I can't blame God for my sin. I can't blame anybody else. I can't blame Satan, although Satan plays a role. It falls on me. You can't blame your culture. You can't blame the website that you happened upon. You can't blame other people. In the end, it's my sinful desire. My desire gives birth to sin. And when sin is grown up, that means as we nourish sin rather than rejecting it and walking away, when we nourish it, when we cultivate it in our lives, when we dip into it continually, James says, it ends in destruction. It produces death. It's like a fire that gets loose in the kitchen and eventually it spreads to the living room and before you know it, the whole house has been destroyed by the spread of the fire. Now, my favorite band has always been the Eagles. Uh, The Eagles were at the height of their fame in 1980. 
And that's when disaster struck. The band splintered apart. They got angry with each other. They promised once they had broken up that they would never get back together. Then the opportunity for concert money came, and they got back together, of course, and you know, we're all happy about that. But the, the, when the Eagles fell apart, Don Henley, the drummer, made a great statement. He said, we created a monster, and it ate us. And that's actually very poignant. That's what James is saying. That, that we create, not the temptation, the temptation comes to everybody, right? But in our desire, we meet that temptation. Sin is conceived, it grows up, and it consumes you. It eats you, it'll destroy your life. Sin will not be satisfied with just a little bit of you. It wants it all. So we need to be very careful. This, is, this message is going to get better, by the way. Okay? But we need to be really careful not to, uh, to soften the issue of sin. We all desperately want to do that. Our culture, our culture doesn't even use the word sin anymore. You'll never hear that in the mainstream. We don't use that word because we don't like that word. It puts too much responsibility. That's a, that's a, that's a harsh religious word. We don't like it. But we tend to want to soften the reality, okay? And so here's a couple of things we've just got to be very careful never to do. Do not, Kyle, I'm preaching to myself, do not excuse your sin by calling it a mistake. A mistake is a well-intentioned accident. Sin is not a mistake. Don't call it that. Refuse to blame your sins on others. Others may have been part of your sin, but they're not the fault of your sin. And don't use other people as your measuring stick to say, well, I may, have, I may be pretty bad. I may have messed up here, but look at him. Look at what he's done. And as long as I'm better than somebody else, I can pacify myself and feel better about me. We can't do that. That softens reality. And then we, we can't explain sin away by using pop psychology. Now, I can be especially bad about this. But I'll say to myself, well, you know, the reason I do such and such is because I struggle with self-esteem. And that may very well be true. There may be at least some truth in that. But y'all, the implication is that if I just had better self-esteem, I wouldn't be a sinner. And that simply isn't true. Because at the bottom of sin, all sin, at the bottom of it, is a rebellion against God. It's not a psychological tick. It's rebellion against God. That I desire what God condemns and I consciously choose it instead of Him. All sin, ultimately, great and small, all sin comes down to that. And so we will never face the reality, the abrasion of sin if we're always trying to soften it, excuse it away, pretend it away, justify it, or shift the blame. Don't soften it. You'll notice how James concludes this little section in verse 16. Very, very simple, and yet so profound. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Why would, he, why would he need to command us not to be deceived? Because he knows the human heart. James, I'm sure, knew his own heart. That we're prone to self-deception. You know, I'm, I'm quite certain that nobody in this room wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I'm going to rebel against God today. In a conscious and overt kind of way. We don't do that. Nobody in this room does that. Sin in our lives typically happens much more subtly than that. Because what we do instead is we deceive ourselves. We trick ourselves into thinking that somehow I'd be happier, I'd be better off without God. And even as a Christian, we can convince ourselves of that. We can deceive ourselves to think that a little bit here and there won't hurt me, won't hurt anybody else. 
But I've got to find happiness. I've got to have, I've got to have some experience apart from God that God simply cannot or will not offer me. And so we pursue it in self-deception. You know, we're, we're reading, if, if you've been walking through with us in our Bible reading plan, if not, there's, there's a stack of them on the back table as you go. But as we go through chapter by chapter of Exodus right now in our reading plan, it's fascinating. That Exodus is the story of God rescuing His people from Egyptian slavery. The people of Israel who are under the oppressive yoke of Pharaoh, God, through many signs and wonders, brings them out of Egypt and promises them a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land. And, and Exodus is, in large part, the journey of their story out of slavery and into freedom. But we were reading this past week in Exodus 16, and it's really, it's, a, it's an amazing and sobering story. That very soon after that miraculous rescue, the people of God got hungry and they began to revolt. This is Exodus uh, 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now can you see the deception at work in that? God has miraculously rescued them from slavery, real deal, legitimate slavery, and less than two months later, They're wishing to go back. They want to go back. Because at least in Egypt, we had pots of meat. The hunger, the physical hunger for the people of God was a simple test. It was just a test. Surely, after God has provided for us miraculously throughout this entire thing, surely God's going to take care of us now. But right then and there, when they got hungry, they failed the test. Because that revealed in them their hunger was their temptation. It was the opportunity for sin and it revealed in them a lack of faith. That their desire for food eclipsed their desire to love and honor God and trust Him. They did not trust Him and therefore they grumbled against Him. Y'all, remember, temptation is not really the worst part of this thing. Temptation is not our ultimate problem. But it is a test. It is a test. Is God my trust? Is God my treasure? When the, when the enticements of sin come along, am I able to withstand that temptation because I have a greater trust and treasure in my heart? Or do I believe, do I become convinced that I can find and even must find life outside of Him, outside of His provision, outside of His presence and grace? You know, the, the sad story of the Exodus is Israel failing at every single turn. Every single turn. The book of Hebrews warns us, don't be like Israel, who did not enter the promised land because they lacked faith in God. Temptation's a test that we might trust and treasure God above anything else. Right? Now, y'all, James, James does an amazing thing here. I want, to see how the, I want you to see how the corner is turned. That the subject doesn't really change in the end, but he makes a very clear break here to expose us now to good news. Our sin has been exposed, and I hope we feel it. But do you notice what verse 16 says? I just read it. Do not be deceived, right? Clearly, James is talking about sin. Do not be deceived about the power and the presence of sin. But he's actually building a bridge to what's coming next. He's not just talking about the deception of sin. 
James is also saying, I don't want you to be deceived about the power and the presence of God. I don't want you to miss the greater reality and truth. Now look at verse 17. Don't be deceived because in contrast to the false and destructive promises of sin, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We are constantly tempted to seek life apart from God. But James makes it abundantly clear. Every good thing, God is the source. There is no life apart from God. There is no real life. There's living, there's biology. There's periodic fits of happiness, perhaps, as we seek and grab after the things of the world. But ultimately, God is the source of every true and good thing. He's the giver of every perfect gift. If there's anything truly good in your life, James says, you can trace it back to the hand of a loving and generous father. Anything good, any provision, any protection, anybody to squeeze your hand and tell you they love you. Ultimately, that is a gift of God. And this is meant to put our sin in perspective, our sin. Because our desire for sin, most of us, it comes from the deception that somehow I can find better than what God can give. Somehow there's something out there for me better, more enjoyable, more desirable, more fulfilling than what God can offer me. And James says, no, you can't outdo verse 17. Every good and perfect gift. There's no outdoing that. There's no surpassing that. God has no competitors. There's nothing anyone else can provide for you that can come close to what He gives. What He gives the world can't touch. And so only God provides what is truly good. He's the source. Now James wants to make it clear here that God is not just loving and generous, but He's also faithful. Which means God doesn't just show up when good things happen and we can thank Him for it. And then He disappears for a while and maybe He'll come back again. He's not like a genie in a bottle. He's not just good, He's also faithful. You notice this in verse 17 in the middle. James uses a a phrase that is utterly unique in the Bible. You only find it right here. He calls God the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That, That term, lights, James is talking about the heavenly bodies. Sun, moon, and stars. And it's a statement, one, of God's sovereignty of creation, that God is not like, in this context, the early church, He's not like the Greek gods who exist within the creation, and they're really more human than divine. They act just like we do. He says God is above it. God created the heavenly lights, and therefore He is sovereign. He is powerful. You can trust that He can be generous with everything because there's nothing He can't withhold from you. There's nothing outside of His power. But then also, now this is really interesting. James is making a point. With God, there's no variation or shifting shadow. What happens as the sun rises from east and sets in the west? What happens to the shadows? They move, right? Now, we figured out eventually it's not the sun that's moving. We're the ones moving. We're the ones rotating and and revolving. But as the heavenly bodies move and shift by our understanding, right? things change. Shadows change. And James' greater point is that even we change. We are fickle. Nobody has perfect integrity. Nobody is the same all the time, right? Everything changes. Everything except God. That unlike what we see and feel and experience here on this earth, constant change with God, there is no variation 
or shadow due to change. He does not shift. He does not move. God is unchanging and His goodness never fails. See, sin is fleeting. Sin is temporary. Sin never fulfills on what it promises. Sin always deceives. Sin takes away. Sin destroys. James is utterly clear. But here's the contrast. Verse 17. God is true. God is faithful. God is generous. God is good. With Him there is no shadow due to change. Now if we stop right here, this would make for, I think, a a decent message. You can be the judge of that over lunch. But if we just stopped right here, we could say, oh, you know, golly, sin bad, God good, caveman language. Um, Therefore, if sin is bad and God is good, then the obvious answer for me is I've got to stop sinning and I've got to start obeying. And it's not that simple. And James does not stop there. As if, to, as if to tell us that our main problem is that we're bad, and if we could just will ourselves to be good, then our problems would be solved. But remember what I said earlier. This passage reveals to us two great truths. We've looked at the first. God exposes our sin. But then the second, we can't miss the second. God expunges our sin. He cleanses our sin. See, y'all, one of the key beliefs that we stand on as Christians is that we, left to ourselves, you left to yourself, you can't outrun the problem of sin. You cannot overcome it through willpower or through greater education or more opportunity. You cannot be as good as God requires. You cannot be righteous. And therefore, it's not enough to say, well, I'll just turn from the bad stuff and be a good person. Everybody's trying to do that. And we're not getting anywhere. No, God has to personally intervene. God has to interpose We'll sing that in a minute. He's got to step in for you. And that's why verse 18 is here. That's why James concludes like this. In the exercise of His will, God brought us forth by the word of truth so that that we would be a kind of first fruit among His creatures. James, James is saying right here, God, by God's gracious choice, He has given us new birth. He has brought you forth through the gospel of Jesus. The word of truth, every time we see that in the New Testament, that's a reference to the gospel, the grace of God in Jesus. And so what James is saying here is, of all God's good gifts, of all the good and perfect things He gives us, verse 17, this is the greatest, this one takes the cake, that God has put your sin to death and He has made you alive in Jesus. That by His gracious choice, He has given you a new birth. This is how the great Charles Spurgeon put it. I've got this to put on the screen here because it's 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 a full paragraph. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Of His own will, God did to us all that has been done without any incentive or prompting, moved only by Himself because He delighteth in mercy, because His name and His nature are love, Because evermore, like the sun, it is natural to him to distribute the beams of his eternal grace. Y'all, the good news of Jesus declares that God accepts you on the basis of his gracious choice. God does not say to you, fight temptation, grit your teeth, reject sin, 
then I'll accept you. That's what all religion teaches. That's not what God says in the Bible. Because you are not the first mover in your salvation. You do not come to a certain point and then God will finish the rest. No. He is the first mover. It's His gracious choice. James says, because God has willed to give you life in Jesus, therefore you have been cleansed of your sin guilt. You've been given a new birth. The old is gone. The new has come. And that makes you, if you are a Christian, that makes you a trophy of God's grace. That you do not look in the mirror and delight in what you see because look how good I've been today. No, if we deal with the reality of the exposure of our sin, we'll never come to that conclusion if we're honest. But no, I delight in what I see in some sense because God has given me grace in Jesus Christ to cover everything. And I'm not delighting in myself. I'm delighting in the great treasure I've been given. I've been made a son of God, a daughter of God by faith. And so it's natural now for God, like the Son, to distribute the beams of His eternal grace. That's what Spurgeon said. He makes you a glimmering and beautiful trophy of His glory. Because He put Jesus in your place. And we are now the first fruits among His creatures. Now, I'll say this real quickly. This, the first fruits, that's a really important biblical concept. In the Old Testament, it, was, it, was, it spoke of the harvest season. That when the first fruits came in, the first of the crops came in, those first crops were dedicated to God. The very first and best of our produce we give to God because God is the giver of all good things, right? In the New Testament, the first fruits is how Christians are referred to. Christians become the first fruits. We are the produce of God's very best work, the salvation that comes through Jesus. And this was especially true of the early Christians because they were, quite literally, among the very first to hear the gospel, to become Christians. And James is saying that in the course of history and for all eternity, you will be among the very first of the great harvest. From every tongue, tribe, and nation, those who have been brought in by God's grace and salvation, you have a wonderful privilege. You are among the first fruits of His creatures. Now let's take, okay, let's take the bad news and the good news here and combine them together. I've tried to do that, I hope, as we've gone. The exposure of sin, but also the cleansing and the purification of sin. The truth that James wants to lay out for us. The truth that we have to, to land on and remain on every day that we live on this earth. That we conceive sin in our hearts. And the outcome is death. There is no one else to blame. I conceive of it and I act it out. The outcome is destruction every time. But God, we just saw it, God conceives of grace that produces life. I said this earlier in, the, in the, uh, the service, that where sin abounds, the Scripture says, grace abounds all the more. There is no sin that God's grace cannot and will not cover. And that's why we have to be eager. Strange as this seems, we've got to be eager to face our sin. To own our sin, to confess our sin. It ought to be something that rather than running from it, pretending it away, hiding from it, suppressing it, no, we should be happy as God exposes our sin. Because no matter how painful it is to deal with the reality of our own hearts, how much more supremely joyful it is to bask in God's redeeming grace. See, only when we recognize the depravity of my heart, of my sin, only when I recognize it and own it, do I really see the great contrast between my sin and God's grace? 
Uh, one of the old, smart, dead guys, it was Luther Calvin, it was one of those guys, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but he made a great statement. He said, if your sin be small, then your Savior will be small. If you don't think you're all that bad, then Jesus didn't need to do all that much for you. And really, He didn't even need to die on the cross. He could have just come and give you, given you a, a boost, a little more extra commandment here, here and there to shore up your problems. But if your, save, if your sin is great, He said, then your Savior must be great and will be great. And so for all, as as ugly as my sin is, if I'm willing to be honest about it, as ugly as my sin is, God's cleansing blots out every stain. Every single sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why we own it. That's why we own it. Not just so that we'll feel the pain and the weight and the difficulty, like Psalm 38 says, but so that we might enter into the joy and the freedom, the redemption and the sanctification of God's grace. That's why John says it like this. First John chapter one. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see how John echoes James. But verse nine, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I I know this about me. I suspect it's true for you. Everything within us, we want to excuse our sin. We want to ignore our sin. We want to blame somebody else. We want to suppress it. We we don't want to stare it down. It's, it's, It's shameful. It's difficult. But if we stare it down, if we own it, if we grieve it, as we should, and most importantly, if we take our sin and bring it to Jesus, as we should then we have the unique privilege of faith that Jesus Christ receives you. He cleanses you. He brings you out of death and darkness and into light and life. He'll do it every time. Every time without fail. And so be assured today that by faith, God cleanses all of your sins The ones that if everybody else could see what you've done or what you said or even what you thought in your mind, you'd be discredited forever. We've all got them. God cleanses those two. Every last one. And be assured that as you seek God, as you treasure Jesus, that your desire for sin will be swallowed up more and more. By the greater trust, the greater treasure of your heart. The more that you see God as the giver of all good and perfect gifts. God is the one who has given you birth and has brought you forth by the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The more we see and treasure him for who he is and what he's done, y'all, sin becomes less and less palatable. That's just the truth. We will never walk away entirely from temptation as long as you're drawing breath. Temptation will exist. And I'm not of the belief that you ever become on this earth in time and space a perfectly righteous person in all your thoughts and behavior. I don't believe that. But more and more, we reject sin in time and place because the treasure of Jesus Christ has become that precious to us. What can the world offer me that God in His supreme grace has not done a millionfold greater? We need to pray that He would produce this kind of grace in our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, we've prayed this morning a prayer of confession.
But I, I, I hope in my own heart, um, protect me from posturing right now as a pastor, just to, just to say, oh, I'm a sinner, but I'm, I don't really believe it. Um, I don't really face it and own it. So Lord, let this start with me this morning, and I pray, I pray it should be true for all of us. We, we don't like to deal in reality. We don't like it. Because our reality is, is ugly. We are easily tempted and we are easily enticed and we are easily dragged away. And these sins of our hearts and lives, they may be well hidden from others, but they're not hidden from your sight. And they're not hidden from an honest heart and an honest look in the mirror. And so, Father, we don't let us posture this morning because we're at church and we're supposed to have it all figured out. We don't. Father, expose our sin. We can't live up to our own standards. We certainly can't live up to your standards. And so just let's just deal with it, Father, today. Give us an honesty and an integrity to deal with it. But Lord, dealing with it means knowing where to take it, where to go. And Lord, we don't, we don't return to the old religious idea of just dusting ourselves off picking ourselves up and trying better next time. That will do us no good. Father, give us a mind to look into the sweet and precious gospel of Jesus. That by His grace, He has made all provision through His life and death and then resurrection. He has done everything, 100% of what is required for us. We don't have to clean ourselves up first. That we can come to you dirty and ashamed. Lord, we come to you right this moment. And receive all grace to cover all sin. And Lord, let that be the sweetest and greatest news we'll ever hear. That you have brought us forth by the word of truth. And we are now the first fruits from among your creatures. Lord, we are part of the great harvest of your grace. If we have simply received you by faith. And Father, if that is true of us today, and I hope it is, then Lord, would you make sin more and more and more distasteful and ugly and putrid to our mouths? That when we recognize that it was our sin that, that nailed Jesus to the cross, it was our sin that he had to die to forgive that we would grieve it and no longer pacify it, no longer coddle it, but that we would own it and grieve it. And Father, that we would seek the Lord Jesus Christ as our treasure so that nothing else is palatable any longer, that nothing else is, is that temptation doesn't have a hold on us because our sinful desire more and more is being swallowed up treasure of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. Lord, we, we know that this is a long and difficult journey. So by your grace, Lord, would you, would you grant us the opportunity today to take one step toward you? We won't get there all at once. But Lord, sanctify us today. Make us more like Jesus today. Make us better confessors of sin today. Because when we confess, we know that you are just and righteous to forgive our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, that we are trophies of grace. 
Thank you, Lord, that our sins are not held against us. And thank you in Jesus Christ that we can aspire always to live righteously as we love and cherish and walk with him. And so make it so in our hearts and our lives today, we pray. Amen.